Welcome to season four of the Precision Medicine Podcast, sponsored by Trapello. This is the podcast where experts come to discuss the problems oncologists, reference labs, and payers face as precision medicine grows and consider solutions for advancing the quality of patient-centered cancer care. Be sure to subscribe at precisionmedicinepodcast.com to get the latest episodes delivered straight to your inbox. Welcome to the Precision Medicine Podcast. I'm Jerome Madison, and we'd like to welcome our listeners, those of you who may have just joined the conversation, our loyal listeners. Welcome to Season 4, Episode 53, and for the most part, welcome to a new year. Um, You know, it's been our goal for this podcast from the beginning to address the challenges associated with the scale and access to precision medicine by inviting key opinion leaders and experts from the various stakeholders across healthcare to discuss the challenges and most importantly, potential solutions to accelerate patient access to precision medicine, which would be testing and, and targeted therapies. And in a few episodes in the past, we've had the incredible privilege to talk to cancer patients and survivors and hear firsthand accounts of their experience with diagnosis, treatment, and survivorship. And today we have the best of all worlds, Karen, We have Belinda King-Kalamanis, Director of Patient-Focused Research from Longevity, and also Nichelle Stigger, Longevity Board Member and Lung Cancer Survivor. Thank you both for being guests on the Precision Medicine Podcast. Thank you for having me. Yeah, welcome, ladies. Thank you. Belinda, can you give us an overview of Longevity and the mission of the organization? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Longevity is a really fantastic organization um, that brings together research, education, and support services for patients and caregivers in the lung cancer community. And we really strive to empower patients and caregivers to be active decision makers in their treatment process and to have the resources that they need to do that. Because when you get a diagnosis of cancer, you sort of land in a world where you don't speak the language. So we've got some really fantastic resources on the webpage to help people navigate that. Um, But part of my role is um, the research piece, and we really are dedicated to funding research um, to link uh, together research spending and improve, because that link between research spending and improved survival is really clear. Um, And uh, with the patient-focused research that we do, we really strive to change the paradigm in lung cancer from assumptions being made about what patients and caregivers want to creating evidence-based conclusions. Um, and we do that by carrying out our IRB-approved research studies. Wonderful. Nichelle, you were diagnosed with a rare form of lung cancer two questions for you. Can you share with us your experience in the healthcare system getting to your diagnosis? And then what did you learn during your treatment journey that you wish you would have known prior to starting your care? Yeah. um, You know, in this journey of lung cancer is a long journey and it's, it really is never ending because you're constantly learning I could have done this in a different way. There were different Mm. opportunities. Um, But I think for me, when I was diagnosed in the latter of 2016, 2017, um, it was this the barriers that I faced, which were um, ageism and um, 
it was really hard for me to get my doctors, so my pulmonologist, to believe that um, what was inside my lung was cancerous. And so I waited. I had to wait for a long time. Um, And I think in the beginning, you know, I thought that that doctor or that pulmonologist was my only choice and how could she be wrong? And so I did, I listened to her and I, and I waited. Um, and of course, hindsight is, is, is 20, 26 months later. Um, like I already knew it grew the cancer. Um, and it, 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 it was a rare cancer. So it didn't show up, um, on a PET scan that I had to fight for literally for an hour in her office. Um, uh, but the PET scan, my cancer is so rare, it doesn't um, intake sugar. And so the mass is there and, you know, the, their only indication um, was whether or not there would be growth. Um, and it grew pretty fast. But so, yeah, I, I guess in terms of um, what I would have liked to have known, uh, there's so many things. I mean, I think in the beginning, too, um you know, the, m- many people don't talk much about biomarkers if your cancer is rare, if your cancer um, only follows this sort of path. Um, they don't even mention it to you or, or offer it to you. I never heard of um, targeted treatment until I was a part of longevity. So, mm. yeah. Interesting. And not good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Definitely interesting. And I always say, had I not been who I was, who I am, um, I was fortunate and unfortunate uh, to already be steeped within the healthcare system. My father, uh, my paternal father, um, had a bleeding disorder called hemophilia, if people are familiar with, and he had severe A, but this was um, in the 80s. And so the system, our system hadn't figured out a way to properly clean uh, blood that they were getting for blood products to, um, you know, heal these, these, um, these people with hemophilia. And my dad um, contracted HIV AIDS from contaminated blood. And so that was a huge system. I, you can probably remember the story of um, the late Ryan uh, White and his story of how he wasn't allowed into school and uh, because he had HIV AIDS, not by his own, you know, anybody, but, you know, he, he had it because of um, the, the health system's fault for not uh, taking care of that blood. So, yeah, so I was well-versed already. And, mm-hmm. and, and that was, I think, um, something I kept with me, which was important. So just a follow-on question there um, with regard to how you mentioned that you didn't learn about biomarkers until you um, were with Longevity. So could you highlight the resources that Longevity offers to newly diagnosed patients? Yeah. So it is a a really wonderful, cool, hip club to be a part of. (laughs) But during that first few times that you go to those meetings, it is not the place to be. Um, and so I would say that first meeting I went to, they have these wonderful lunch and learns and you get to meet community, but also you get to meet community of uh, community of researchers and community of doctors and community of oncologists. And, um, you know, the list goes on and on, but you have sort of um, 
this first line of people who have may have already used them, may have known someone close to them that have that have used you know these people, and so it's it's like really getting um, a great recommendation. But um, I would say for me it was the community and being able to hear real patient stories, and I call these patients my friends, right? So to hear my friends' stories, uh, to say I have a cough. And to Mm -hmm. hear someone else say, "Ah, yeah, I have a cough and it never goes away. And sometimes I cough so bad, you know, you know, you cough up a lung and, and, you know, there's a joke Mm -hmm. there. Mm -hmm. But it's it's interesting because you get to see yourself in another person's mirror and you don't feel alone. And then gradually this this feeling of um, belonging happens and that place where you were like, why am I here becomes why am I not here? And how often can I be in this space with these people? Mm, that feeling of isolation goes away. Oh, my goodness. And then after that, everything sort of falls into place. You know, you, you, you get that pulmonologist. You get a second opinion. So I was at St. Joe's Hospital. Um, and after I went to Longevity, I was able to get a second opinion just to make sure that um, at St. Joe's, which I was getting wonderful care at, but we just wanted to make sure that my plan was okay because my cancer is so was so rare. And it's mucinous adenocarcinoma, which is mm. basically not quite a mass. It's like uh, a jelly. And it's not uh, ever found in the lung and only 2% of people um, in the world. And that's what I've seen so far in our white papers because there's only a few they've renamed it and all of these different things. But um, yeah, so it's been tough to find other people who have um, uh, a cancer like mine. And so you just, you kind of stay on the outskirts, but it didn't feel like that um, with longevity. It felt like no matter what I was, you know, cancer is cancer, which is really reflective of the world in some ways. Mm, It's very true. Nichelle, I will tell you that I, I so honor you for um, just your spirit, the energy that mm. you, you have when you, you talk about your experience, the levity that you bring to the experience. I mean, it, it is so, so appreciated. I honor you for that. But Thank you. You know, I, I got to tell you, I'm sitting here like getting kind of pissed <laughs> off because Karen, <laughs> Karen, we've heard this before. We've heard mm-hmm. this before when it talked about, you know, a patient goes in and they're young and the doctor looks at them and says, no, it's not cancer. You're too young. Like yeah. we've mm-hmm. heard that before. And it's, it's kind of crazy. Um, you know, Belinda, you guys have Project Peer, where you're looking into just understanding the patient experience um, and their needs associated with, you know, treatment diagnosis of lung cancer patients. Talk to us more about that. Yeah, absolutely. So we have this study that's been going for just about a year now, and we ask that people join us to tell us their experience, and it can be anybody's experience. The age range at the moment is between 24 and 79. There's no inclusion, exclusion criteria. It doesn't matter what type of um, diagnosis you have, histology, biomarker, doesn't matter. Um, You can participate in this study. And we also have caregivers as well. Um, They're able to participate in the study. And we ask questions about um, their experiences with accessing care. And by that, I mean how, whether they got biomarker testing, what was offered to them, were there any barriers that they experienced? So did they get their results quickly or did they have to wait a while or did they have to start another treatment while waiting for those results? But we also ask things about um, their 
you know, financial impact of cancer treatment. So with specific issues like how their treatments impacted their medical bills, but also on a more personal note, how that um, cancer treatment has impacted their ability to pay their rent, buy food and clothes. And then we dive into the types of treatments that they've been receiving as well. So it's um, uh, open for the foreseeable future at the moment. And there's a baseline or a a first survey that people fill in that's pretty comprehensive. But after that, it's just monthly surveys sort of checking in to see if treatment has changed and how your functioning and side effects um, are sort of progressing along as well. A little bit different structure for a, a, a study that, that most would be familiar with. Right? I mean, this is, you say, patient-focused research. Yeah, absolutely. We wanted to get away from that we, clinical trial setting, but um, also map, we collect data that you can map back to clinical trial populations. So things about how people, uh, their performance, how they feel their performance is, like are they spending time in bed or able to move around more? So we can map that back to things that are collected in clinical trials. We actually have a research collaborative agreement with the um, Oncology Center of Excellence and the FDA uh, so that we'll be able to look at some clinical trial data from um, lung cancer studies and then look at our data. And while it's not a direct comparison, of course, um, but we will have some common questions we'll be able to look at and see how the populations are different. Um, and so that's, uh, yeah, that's the study that we're doing. <laughs> how, how do our listeners find more information about that? Yeah, so they can, um, well, I can share the link, of course. Uh, it is on our webpage, um, but it's not on the front page. So I'll definitely share the link. And we really are looking for a diverse set of experiences because what we find, and we can get into this with some of the other studies we've done, is that the, longe- the, the folks that um, find themselves in the longevity community tend to be pretty savvy Uh, and are able to advocate for themselves and speak up and feel comfortable. But we really do want to hear those people's stories that, you know, maybe they think that they don't matter, but they really do. Like, it is so important that we have um, the the ability to understand what's happening for them because, you know, research often is, it overlooks a lot of people, unfortunately. Mm. Yeah. The Precision Medicine Podcast will continue right after this. With the explosion of new data and biomarkers in cancer today, how can healthcare professionals keep pace to know which genes will best inform treatment decisions? Trapello knows. Trapello is the first single technology platform used by oncologists, labs, and payers to resolve the complexities of precision medicine in real time. Trapello knows which patients to test and when. It knows which tests are most appropriate, which labs are preferred, and which treatments are most likely to be reimbursed. Visit TrapelloHealth.com to learn how you can give cancer patients the most appropriate, evidence-based treatment options when time matters most. On the theme of patient-focused research, um, as precision medicine has grown and evolved, one of the challenges has been how it's communicated with patients. And by that, I mean the terminology. I mean, you know, you could call it molecular testing, genomic testing, gene sequencing, um, genetic testing, you know, they're, they're just seemingly overlapping terms, even when we're talking about um, mutations, gene variants. Um, there's so many different types that can fit under the umbrella of mutation. 
But fortunately, longevity has done work in this particular area to kind of close this knowledge and communication gap. Nikki Martin, who is the director of Precision Medicine Initiatives at Longevity, was the lead author on a 2021 ASCO paper that examined how these multiple overlapping terms uh, have affected the ability for healthcare providers to communicate and adopt the practice of precision medicine in the clinic. And I think it's important to point out, Belinda and Michelle, that the conclusion of this paper was recommending intentional use of plain language and common umbrella terminology, right? Like, like, so everyone can use the same words in order to facilitate, you know, a shared conversation and decision-making with their patients. And, you know, this doesn't just involve communication from doctor to patient, but it's also industry representatives who use these various terms to educate, you know, healthcare providers on their products and services. And what may be often overlooked is the education of mid-level providers, nurses, uh, patient navigators, support staff, who are often left to explain what genetic testing is versus, you know, genomic testing versus biomarker testing to a patient. Can you talk to us about the work that you've done with to educate nurses and, you know, patient navigators? You know, what do you hear back from these, these mid-level and support staff uh, who in many cases must communicate what these tests are and how the information is going to be used? Yes, the, the the struggle there is real with that. And, you know, Nikki has done a really great job of um, speaking to different stakeholders and has talked with patients about their experience and what terms they hear. And yeah, you're right. It ranges from biomarker testing to molecular testing and everything in between. Um, you know, from the project direct that you're sort of referring to the big, the main call to action is um, really to create health literate um, materials and um, there is a need to explore opportunities for provider and patient organizations to create joint patient and provider facing educational tools. Um, It can't really come from one or the other. It really needs to be um, a collaborative endeavor where you have nurse navigators and oncologists and patients sitting at the table talking about how to make these sorts of materials that work for everybody. Um, Because I don't, if they come from, sometimes if they come from the patient organizations, providers don't see value in them. And then, you know, if they come from the providers, it can be missing that health literate piece. Uh, And so I know Nikki has that as one of her next steps. Um, is to create more of those materials. So, Michelle, you are a part of the Longevity Health Equity Council with Dr. Karen Winkfield. Um, she is a national expert in community engagement and does great work examining healthcare disparities, uh, a topic that we try to cover a lot on the podcast. Um, can you, um, she's written, so she's written and talked about the importance of ethnic diversity within the clinical staff that interacts with patients, of course, and the idea being to gain the trust of minority patients for whom biomarker testing for lung cancer lags very significantly um, behind other groups. Can you speak to the impact uh, that this can make for, for cancer patients um, and specifically Project Direct? Yeah, I think, um, 
It's not rocket science. It's 2021. Um, <laughs> and I like to add the hard questions or, or the wonderings, if you will, as we say in the education world. Um, Belinda knows that I'm, I'm very um, passionate, if you will, about understanding that it's simple, it's inclusion, and it's understanding the intersectionalities of a human with mm-hmm. um, this disease. And so how do we make sure that everyone is seen so that the data that we're gathering can um, represent people who look like me? And I think we're in the beginning stages for us to really understand what that impact will be, but we know that we're missing and that there's an impact from us missing. And when I mean us, I mean Black women, Black men, people of color. Um, And we're not a monolith, right? So I can't um, speak to other people's stories, but I can speak to mine, and I can tell you um, that the doctor or the pulmonologist that I saw was not expecting me to understand the roadmap that she was explaining to me. Um, She was not expecting me to be well-versed in cancer, Um, and she wasn't expecting me to um, advocate for myself. And so if you don't have a toolbox and strategies, and if you don't feel empowered for for your own health to ask um, certain questions, you won't, and you won't get the care because we're already up against barriers. Um, As a person of color, I'm already up against a barrier. And on top of that, um, I now have lung cancer, which is also a barrier and carries stigma. Um, And so it is so important for us um, to be seen. So one of the things that we talk about uh, in the education world is our students need to see teachers who look like them. And why is that important? Well, because students have different backgrounds and students have, um, you know, different stories. And so they also need to be able to identify and feel as if they belong. And seeing someone who looks like you does that. That's that first little step. But also, if we are having people in these um, in these studies, then we're able to treat them. (laughs) Their voice is there. Um, They become human. Um, and, you know, we could save a lot of lives and a lot of hassle, really. I feel like a lot of suffering that some people um, didn't need to go to, go through, yes. excuse me. Yeah, mm. absolutely. You know, lung cancer treatment is becoming more personalized by the year and now includes targeted therapy options, even in early stages of disease. Dr. Luis Reyes of the Memorial Cancer Institute in South Florida came on as a podcast guest and gave us an amazing update on Mm. the impact of precision medicine and lung cancer treatment. Um, Podcast episode 41, just saying. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But he talked about, you know, at the beginning when he started practicing, you know, medicine, uh, that half of his lung cancer patients would ultimately succumb to um, their diagnosis. But now due to, you know, increased testing, um, you know, broad-based molecular profiles, they're able to identify patients with very rare mutations. And he talks about a patient that he has, that he's currently treating, that has um, an ALK mutation. And that's only 5% of, you know, those with non-small cell lung cancer. But because they found this particular mutation for a patient and was treated with an ALK inhibitor, this patient is seven, eight years out still 
is not cured, still, you know, is living with their tumor, but they're thriving. And even the last couple of years, 2020, 2021, we've seen at least 17 new drug indications, all of which target a specific gene mutation. Um, I checked with Janine Morales, who is the chief scientific officer of our title sponsor, Trapello Health. She said just in 2021, she knows of at least eight NCCN guideline changes for the treatment of lung cancer. Um, she, by the way, was our guest on episode 49. Just saying, go check it out. Please. <laughs> um, you know, but I guess here's here's my question, Nichelle and, and Belinda. Despite these advances, there are numerous publications that point to the slow adoption or, you know, some would say the lack of adoption of biomarker testing for lung cancer patients. How can patient advocacy groups like Longevity help drive the adoption of biomarker testing? So Longevity launched last month the No One Missed campaign, um, which aims to build that public awareness of biomarker testing, that it really should be part of every non-small cell lung cancer diagnosis um, and has sort of information and tools to help people advocate to get biomarker testing. Um, now, as Nichelle said, she found longevity. Uh, I'm not sure exactly when into her particular um, from when she was diagnosed to when she found longevity, but it can be some time between yeah. getting a diagnosis and finding a group um, a foundation or advocacy group who can help you um, advocate for yourself to get these sorts of things. And it might be that that comes, unfortunately, for some folks, a little bit too too late in the process or later in the process, maybe it isn't too late, but it's difficult to sort of um, get in in that very first moment when these things really are critical and need to happen when someone is just overwhelmed with that diagnosis. Um, but we do try and we are constantly think, trying to think of new ways to reach people, whether it be via social media and by building relationships with uh, clinicians who treat lung cancer, but also community oncologists who, uh, you know, as you are saying, the NCCN guidelines have changed eight times. That's that's how do you keep up with that if you're treating <laughs> lung cancer, breast cancer, mm -hmm. prostate cancer? You know, exactly. how, do you, how, how does anyone do that and do it well? So, mm -hmm. I mean, I this you know we completely understand how challenging it is, but. Um, yeah, making trying to get build relationships with those folks is really critical too, because you know they're the ones who can sort of you know this is a great resource where there's information um, that's pretty easy to under. I think if you're a, especially if you're an um, med onc or something like this, our information is really easy to understand, and we have worked though in the last twelve months to make the information more in plain language because that was something that it was not terrible, but it wasn't great either. But we have really worked. Um, some of my colleagues have done some amazing work trying to talk about this stuff on a one pager just to get mm. the basics through. Um, but if you're a medical professional, I think the information we have is also highly useful to you and relevant because it's up to date. My colleague, um, Dr. Upo Basuroy is 
you know, and his colleague Maji are always like updating materials on the website and making sure it's as up to date as possible when the FDA sends out that release to say that there's been a new drug approval. They're on it, like updating the website to make sure that it's there as soon as we can have it there. And the same with Peer, if their project Peer, as soon as there's a new well, we don't do it every time there's one because we have to pay the IRB fees. But um, when there, are, you know, when we have a couple of updates to the drug list, we'll update our drug list on peer because we don't, we, you know, we want people to be able to report what drug they're on. So um, it's, but it's hard. I, it's really, really hard to find people in that first moment um, when there's just so much there to work out and what is this biomarker testing that you're talking about? Mm, yeah, and I think, you know, that's not something that was brought to me, um, in, you know, in the office while I was being, um, you know, told of amongst everything else. And, I, you know, it, it does feel like after you have, and this is another thing I'd like people to think about, most, most of my friends that I know are in later stages with their cancer. So, you know, maybe stage four. And I was stage two, two I'm stage two B. And um, it seems to me that the smaller stage you have, the less it less attention that you can kind of get, that you can, you can be looked over. And, um, you know, I, I, I feel like I'm the face of early detection. So had I not, um, you know, I said, I think stayed in the advocacy game, you know, the idea of early detection wouldn't have occurred to me. I think I would have been like, okay, so yeah, you know, I survived this and this is great, but there's a lot of, um, data, there's a lot of experience there um, for us to still talk about for people who have caught this early by chance. Um, And so what does it do for your life then? And so then that helps us push um, early detection protocols, which, you know, we're working on in longevity right now. Um, And there's just, there's just so many things that go along with this as well. Yeah, it's incredible. Um, as Belinda mentioned at the top of the podcast, you know, longevity uh, is looks to make an impact with research, care provider education, of course, uh, patient support. Longevity is also making an impact on policy. We very recently had Hannah Mamushka and Lena Chihorsky of Alva 10 on the podcast, and we talk about uh, the passing of California State Bill 535 which essentially prohibits insurers from requiring prior authorization for biomarker testing for cancer patients with stage three or four cancer. And I learned that longevity provided the technical expertise on the terminology for the bill, which was, which is really impressive. Um, what other efforts is longevity making to help shape policy? And maybe more specifically, how can we help lawmakers understand the problem and how they may be contributing to the friction in the healthcare delivery system. Yeah, that. So, Kristen Santiago is our senior director of public policy, and she's the one who sort of led the effort to do these scorecards um, that looked at states on a number of different things, and one of them was biomarker testing and what was what was being covered. Um, in the Medicaid population. And that's the, the reason that was used is because private payers often follow suit from what um, Medicaid and Medicare are up to. Um, and yeah, those scorecards, I think, are really 
interesting to look at, uh, a little depressing in some of the states um, to see what is covered and what is not covered. Um, But we really see where we need to educate lawmakers because there's so much complexity here. I mean, we've been talking about it for the last however long it's been, you know, with physicians struggling to keep up with the complexity, how could we expect, you know, our lawmakers to be up on the pulse of biomarker testing for all these types of cancers? Um, And so, you know, but really making it clear to them that these sorts of issues of prior authorization, you know, lead to delays in treatment and poorer outcomes for patients and possibly higher costs. So, um, you know, that's one of our sort of ongoing efforts and the scorecards are really a great resource to, if you are looking to go to your state and advocate um, and we're happy to work with anybody who wants to sort of pick another state and um, do some work there. Those scorecards are interesting. I don't have my notes in front of me, but I'll steal the punchline. Most of the country is failing. (laughs) (laughs) If I may speak to that, um, when I was first diagnosed, um, I wasn't, I was told I couldn't do a biomarker testing. And I got a second opinion after going and visiting the community um, longevity, now that I'm a part of. and I, I followed up with the University of Chicago, and they were able to give me the biomarker testing. Um, and, you know, they were well-versed and said, you are going to get a bill. Do not pay this bill. This bill is going to be 8000 to $10,000. Do not pay this bill. You will then send the bill to us. And they handled that portion. And so the fact that you have a doctor, an oncologist, um, not only talking about, you know, the care of your cancer and your body, right, as a human, but also financially discussing what's going to come through as far as testing. And so it is very daunting. Um, and it's one of the last things uh, I think a cancer patient or someone on that journey ever needs to go through. It should just be about healing. And unfortunately, in our systems, um, it's we're not, like you said, we're failing. We're not there. And so hopefully when we do this, I call it, I always call it the work, um, we get some real movement this time around. So powerful. I just want to commend you ladies and the entire organization on, you know, just really how well the longevity um, presence and the work that you're, you all have done on your website. There's just, just, I'm going to give a plug for you guys because as a brand and marketing um, person, I think that there is just so many resources there, whether you're a patient, whether you're just learning about screening, you're a caregiver. But the one piece that really stood out to me is I love the name of your newsletter, which is Fresh Air. And I think you've hit on so much of that um, tone that's needed in the field of oncology and all of the different stakeholders that uh, have to come into play in order for a patient to get not just the right testing, the right treatment and everything. And I mean, this is something Jerome and I talk about on every single podcast, but um, it's just a a breath of fresh air to see what you guys are doing for patients. And so I just wanted to commend you on all that work. It's a lot. I would also like to shout out Belinda and Upal. Um, As researchers, um, there is this natural... Uh, thought that uh, researchers don't have feelings or, you know, these really bad stereotypes. Mm -hmm. But these two people, um, and I've talked to them over the years, um, and we've become great friends, I feel, that really care about 
the work that they're doing in collecting this data, but making sure that this data represents the human and it is humanized. And so they're constantly, while being experts and looking at the numbers and being experts and, you know, mulling over the data, but they're also experts at humanizing the person and bringing that uh, and together. And then again, that's my favorite word I'll, I'll keep saying it is, is understanding the intersectionalities of how all of this comes into play. And mm-hmm. so this is, you know, the, the protocols and the procedures and their philosophy and the way they do things, um, other people need to follow suit. So big shout out to, sure. to Belinda and, and Upal. Thank you. And it's, you know, I think it's, people like Nichelle make it so easy, right? Like, <laughs> because it's just, you know, I, I, I will confess I was, a st- I did my master's in statistics and PhD also in a branch, specific branch of statistics and thought I would never really speak to people. And <laughs> now, you know, actually by having these relationships, you know, with patients and caregivers that are just so meaningful, I feel like they've completely switched how I think about, you know, the research that I want to, you know, be involved in and have them by my side doing this research together versus sitting in an office, you know, looking at numbers on a screen and thinking (laughs) about how those sort of come together versus, you know, what is really impactful for the communities. So, I mean, same to, I feel the same, Nichelle. I'm grateful to have you in my life. (laughs) Every time you say that, I like, it makes me chuckle because I'm like, no way, no way. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, they're, they're just a, a blessing. And the conversations that we have, I can't tell you guys, like they're, they're life changing. And, um, Yeah, we'll we'll keep having those conversations and, and they're going to keep doing that hard work, I know. Yes. <laughs> and we're thankful that you're having this conversation with us and our listeners here on the Precision Medicine Podcast. By the way, you know, I know we're giving shout outs. Let me give a shout out to all of our listeners and subscribers from Australia. Uh, Belinda is your fellow Aussie even though you may not be able to tell from her accent. (laughs) (laughs) 17 years away, we'll we'll soften it a little. (laughs) Wonderful accent. And I will tell you, uh, Nichelle, I'm not nervous very much, but um, my ninth grade English teacher was a nightmare that still occurs. Mm -hmm. Um, For those of you who don't know, um, Nichelle. Yes is a language and literature teacher. That's right. That's what they're calling it these days. It's no longer just English. It's language and literature. Isn't that the same? <laughs> That's what the kids say. <laughs> well, he, he was my nightmare. And, and you know, trust me, I, I, my articulation was, was on the forefront of my mind because I have an English teacher or a literature teacher here. I still remember Mr. Gray, my ninth grade English teacher, who was still my nightmare. I can still hear him say, you cannot use a pronoun before it's antecedent and they must agree uh, over and over again to me and making me rewrite stuff. And I still <laughs> probably don't know what that means. I love but. it though. It gives me goosebumps <laughs> to hear that you know where the antecedent goes. I literally do. That is Fabulous. <laughs> in our well, in our class, we practice a little bit of slang and a little bit of antecedent. <laughs> well, there was no slang in Mr. Gray's class <laughs> at all. Oh. But I really applaud the work you're doing. Thank you so much for mm-hmm. coming and sharing your stories here on the Precision Medicine Podcast. Belinda King Kalamanis and Nichelle Stigger. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank, Thank you guys you. so much. Thanks, ladies.
You've been listening to the Precision Medicine Podcast, sponsored by Trapello. Trapello is the first clinical decision support tool to align the interests of oncologists, labs, and payers to give patients the best chance at beating cancer. To learn more, visit gettrapello.com. To subscribe to the podcast or download transcripts of any episode, visit precisionmedicinepodcast.com. We invite you to join the conversation on social media. You can find us on Twitter at PMP by Trapello and on LinkedIn at the Trapello company page. If you know someone who would enjoy the Precision Medicine Podcast, please share it. They'll thank you, and so will we. We hope you'll tune in for the next episode. <laughs>